today we're going to look at the uh, letter to the church at Thyatira. Uh, that's probably the correct pronunciation, Thyatira, uh, but I've always called it Thyatira, so you, more than likely I'm just going to call it Thyatira because I'll, I'll mess up as I get to talking fast and, and do it anyway, so that's just what I've always called it, so that's what, uh, that's what I'm going to call it. Um, the city of Thyatira was, uh, it, it was southeast of Pergamum, and I hope you've taken time to find a map uh, of the seven churches uh, of Asia, the province of Asia. Uh, it'll help you just, you know, to know the landscape and the order that John gives the uh, the churches looks like it follows kind of a circular mail route. Uh, you know, some people have put forward that idea. Uh, and so it's just very interesting to see how the, the cities relate to each other. So do that. Find you a map. Uh, the city of Thyatira, or Thyatira, whatever, um, it it was uh, well, it was it was insignificant for a time, but by John's day, it had grown. I mean, to be quite influential city, Thyatira, it had um, it had several gymnasiums, it had colonnades, it had a thriving business community. Um, there was a lot going on in, in Thyatira, and in uh, uh, 25 A.D., uh, Thyatira was damaged severely by, by an earthquake. And after this, the Roman Empire, you know, which uh, was the the uh, over the province of Asia, which Thyatira resided, uh, it aided in the reconstruction, you know, and it added, of course, the famous roman roads and aqueducts and all all kind of things like that so <clears throat> the city was uh, was a uh, uh, relatively influential and 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 not not insignificant by john's day but what most people comment about on thyatira is the fact that uh it had lots of uh, trade guilds and associations in the city, and we know this is true, especially in Thyatira, because uh, we have archaeological evidence uh, in the form of inscriptions that have been found on coins and, and other places that, that give honor to the patrons of these trade guilds or, uh, or wealthy people for funding sacrifices and festivals to different deities and ceremonies uh, in the city. And these inscriptions... They show us that there were uh, there were trade guilds in in Thyatira that uh, there were associations of uh, uh, things like wool merchants and linen workers, um, coppersmiths, potters, tanners, leather cutters, bakers. Uh, all kinds of uh, of trades had each each had its little guild, each had its little association, and these were. Uh, patronized by wealthy people that uh, uh, more often than not were involved in in pagan worship be it by priest or priestess or or that kind of uh, that kind of uh, high standing was a a mark of the aristocracy in 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 these cities and so we've found these inscriptions it's really interesting for me to know that there was also uh, there was also an association of dyers uh, like a uh, that dyed cloth and, and things like that. Uh, the fact that we know that there was a guild of, of cloth dyers in Thyatira is, uh, well, it's interesting to me because in Acts, um, we are introduced to a woman from Thyatira. Her name is Lydia, and she was a seller of purple dye. And so Paul runs into her at a prayer meeting in Philippi in Acts, and she is uh, the first person to be converted to the faith in Macedonia. So the fact that uh, we see that Lydia was this business woman, this seller of purple, this uh, dye seller, and we also have archaeological evidence that there was a trade guild of dyers in Thyatira, uh, it just kind of puts the puzzle pieces together a little bit for me. But people usually, uh, commentators and, and preachers and things, usually make a big deal about these trade guilds in Thyatira because... Uh, you know, like I said, we've had we have the inscriptions that prove their existence, you know, um, and coins and, and different things like that. But the the truth is that they were they were a reality in all the cities of of Asia Minor to a greater or lesser extent. Most most often um, in these inscriptions that we have, uh, uh, they represent honors that uh, are given to wealthy people, wealthy patrons of the guilds, uh, who would you know, fund a sacrifice or, or fund a festival, a ceremony in the city, 
um like i said the the upper class were the ones who were the you know named uh, priests and priestesses of this god or that god and and uh, it was a it was a a badge of honor and the guilds would also honor these gods because if they uh, you know they sought to be prosperous and productive in the city you kind of got to get with the with the ones who got the cash you know what i mean and so <clears throat> you, you can see how all this kind of works together. Uh, we're going to see that in the letter as well. But the two main deities in Thyatira were Apollo. Sometimes he's called Apollo uh, uh Apollo and Artemis. Artemis is also called Diana. Uh, they're brother and sister. They were the gods that supposedly protected the welfare of the city. You know, So if you're going to be a good citizen, lover of humanity, you'd better participate in honoring Apollo and Artemis, uh, these gods, they they would help you grow and prosper, help the city grow and pro- prosper. But you know, really, there were there were lots of other deities as well. There was a uh, uh, meter, you know, who incidentally in that in the city had a guild of singers devoted to it. That's where we get the term meter in music and all. Uh, there were um, cults devoted there to Dionysus, Zeus, Asclepius, Heracles, uh, Heracles, Heracles. Um, and you know, just all kind of deities, all kind of a whole bunch more. It uh, it's pretty much what you is expect after looking at the other cities in the region. <coughs> Excuse me. It uh, it's typically pagan, you know, in its worship. Uh, but Apollo, who was supposedly the son of Zeus, uh, he was the son of Apollo and Artemis were the the twins of Zeus and the goddess Leto. Uh, they they were the main deities. Apollo was the main deity in in the city, and it's interesting to note, and it's going to become more uh, relevant as we read the letter that uh, because Apollo was Zeus's son, he bore the name the son of God in many uh, in temples, inscriptions, and and those kind of things. And and of course, just like the other cities, you better believe there was the imperial cult. Also, there was a thriving cult of Roma, was the goddess of Rome in in Thyatira and the worship of Augustus was particularly prevalent in in Thyatira um there were buildings and shrines dedicated to Augustus in the city that name him also as the son of God uh Julius Caesar was uh, he was deified in in the 1st century BC uh usually around uh, at this time um they were the Caesars were deified after they had died and so uh Julius Caesar was deified in the 1st century BC and since Augustus was his adopted son, he was branded with the moniker, the son of God. Uh, and so incidentally, you know, just for your information, later uh, later on, the first century A.D., uh, even after the, this time, both, uh, both Titus and Domitian were two later emperors, uh, were identified as the son of God. So let's uh that's going to be relevant to the the text. So let's just uh start the letter. Look at verse 18. Uh, we're in chapter 2 verse 18. Uh, remember that uh, I say this every time, but remember we have to walk through this letter, understanding the structure of all the letters, just like we've seen before. Uh, first, you're going to have the address to the church, then the introduction of Jesus using one of the pictures that we have uh, from chapter one, you know, about him being the one walking among the candlesticks and eyes like flaming fire and all those things that are derived from Daniel's picture of the Son of Man. Um, and, and each one that he uses for each letter is going to be directly relevant of it to the church you know to whom he is speaking and so you're going to see that um, front and center right in verse 18 it says verse 18 says and to the church to the angel of the church in Thyatira write uh, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze so first Jesus identifies himself as the son of God Uh, you know that's directly relevant to his audience apollo may be labeled the son of god by the pagans in the city and the roman worshipers may call augustus the son of god but it is jesus christ who is the true one and only son of god he is the authority and he is the divine one he's the only one worthy of their worship uh the other quote unquote sons of god are really no sons at all you know he is called uh, the son of God here and described with, you know, fiery eyes and bronze feet. Uh, but if you remember back in chapter one, John says that it was he doesn't say w- w- the son of God in chapter one. Jesus doesn't say 
the son of God. Or John doesn't say when I saw him, he was like the son of God in chapter one. He calls him like a son of man in chapter one. And uh, it was the son of man in Revelation chapter one that uh, bore these characteristics of fiery eyes and burnished bronze. And uh, of course, we know that's from from Daniel chapter seven. And we'll get to that in a second. But so here in the church to the church at Thyatira, John exchanges the term son of man with the son of God. And uh, it probably should also be noted that this is the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is called the son of God. So we know that John intends a specific purpose here. And I think there's really two applications. It was number one is the one we've already discussed. The fact that, um, you know, everybody and their mom wanted to be the son of God in Thyatira. You had Augustus buying for the title. Uh, you had uh, Apollo vying for the title, and, of course, they all had their worshipers saying, this is the Son of God. No, this is the Son of God. <clears throat> Jesus comes, and he says, no, I, I am the Son of God. And it was directly relevant to the people at Thyatira. But in addition to that obvious application, um, uh, there uh, we see that the, the Son of Man in chapter one, with the fiery eyes and the bronze feet, if uh, if you didn't if you didn't see this in chapter one, if you haven't listened to chapter one, you need to go back and do so, um, because that is who Daniel describes in Daniel chapter seven uh, as the as the divine Messiah, the one who receives the kingdom, the one who is given the kingdom from the ancient of days. He's given dominion and power and an everlasting kingdom. He is uh, presenting himself as. Jesus presenting himself as the messianic figure who is the ruler given the given dominion by the ancient of days. And so uh, if you haven't listened to that discussion in Revelation one, how it connects with Daniel chapter seven, uh, you need to go back and do that. It's um, these are going to build on one another and you better not start in the middle or you're going to miss uh, you're going to miss some uh, some important information. Um, it's also interesting that this same figure of deliverance and power the son of God is pictured by Daniel uh, when King Nebuchadnezzar looks in the furnace. You know, you remember that story? The king throws uh, the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace for not bowing down to his statue. And the king looks in the furnace and sees four people instead of three. And the fourth looks like what? That's right. It looks like he said it looks like a son of God, one like a son of God. And so <clears throat> all these images are coming together in one picture to Jesus is uh, putting all these things together uh, to not only show that he is the true authority, not these other pagan deities, not these other uh, dead emperors, uh, but he is the one who has been prophesied from the beginning. He is the son of man, the son of God. He is uh, the one who is the incarnate God, the divine Messiah who has dominion and authority. You know, all those guys, Apollo and Augustus, they, they might be called by that name, but they don't possess the power and the authority that goes with it. Only Jesus is king and Lord. So <clears throat> I could take you through verse 18 and we've seen this before and talk about how his his fiery eyes let him see into the you know see into the heart and soul and we're actually going to see him say that at the end of this letter uh but i think it's more relevant to to understand where this imagery comes from and what john is pointing us back to as he looks at the uh, the old testament pictures um, so that's what jesus is doing he said i'm i'm the son of god I'm the son of God, and I'm the one with the fiery eyes. I'm the one with the feet of burnished bronze. I'm the one who Daniel prophesied about is basically what he's saying. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus, you know, he's all authority. And once again, the first thing that he says to this people in this church, surrounded by pagan culture and idolatry, is I know your works. Uh, he's the one who walks among the lampstands, and he is intimately involved in the life of his church. And so this is the next part of the structure of the letter. It's the commendation. To the church, they are this church at Thyatira are working diligently, even in the midst of uh, all this stuff going on in the culture, all this false worship, all this pressure from society and politics and uh, the empire and all these things. They have love and they have faith, faithfulness, and they are patiently enduring. Now, <clears throat> we're not told exactly how they are expressing their faithfulness or their love. You know, but it doesn't seem it doesn't seem hard to imagine what would be expected of a church that was, uh, you know, dwelling in the midst of idolatry like they were. Uh, they 
have excelled in their service of love for each other and for the city. They've stood forward as a witness for Christ with patient endurance, even um, – you know, even though it seems like the whole world is pressuring them to blend in with the culture, come on, you know, the sacrifice to this God or that God, it's it's really part of who we are as a as a city, as a as a culture. Don't be so antisocial, you know, don't you? Uh, in Thyatira, it would probably be directly relevant to say that um, they might not be able to work, you know, they might not be able to not be a part of the trade guilds or the associations might uh, directly hamper your ability to uh, to earn a living, especially if you are working in one of those trades, uh, if you aren't with us on appeasing this God, you know, or these wealthy people who, you know, worship this God, uh, you won't get a salary. You know, they pay for a celebration feast. You better attend it if you want to eat around here, you know. And so what's amazing here is that Christ doesn't just commend them for the work. He he says that their latter works are greater than the first. They are growing. They're growing in their faithfulness. They're growing in their love. They're they're having to patiently endure the situation. And so this, by by all intents, is a thriving, growing church that is discipling and showing uh, the reality of Christ in in its ministry. The their works now are actually exceeding how they began. And this is, I mean, that's a growth. That's a, a mark of growth in the in the Christian life and in the body of believers. And Jesus commends them for it. He says, "I know your works. Uh, you're doing well." Um, I often wonder why it seems like uh, why it seems like the opposite is true in most people's Christian life. Um, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You know, the person comes to Christ and and they're just on fire. They're 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 all about Christ, all about serving him. Can't get enough of the word, can't get enough of the fellowship of believers. But years go by and the luster seems to wane after a while, even though there's you know, they're still sitting in the church house, uh, still a member uh, on, on any given Sunday, there's there's no more zeal, no more hunger, no more thirst for righteousness, no more no more uh, awe and wonder about the gospel and about what Christ has done. Uh, we love to tell our, and I, I'm speaking from my own heart here as well. We love to tell ourselves that 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 that's just reality. That's that's what it means to to grow. That's what it means to be uh, a Christian over a long period of time. And we look at those young zealous those young zealous folks in the faith, and we say, you know, they're going to be like me someday. They're they're on fire right now. Isn't that cute? You know, they're going to learn. They're going to get. You know, they're going to be. They're going to grow. Uh, and the reality is that it's it's you and I who need to learn. We need to learn from them. Here we we have an example of a church whose latter works of love, faithfulness, patient endurance is greater than when they started. Uh, they did not wax and wane. They they were uh, they were more devoted, more zealous in their work for Christ, more um, uh, service oriented, love oriented, more faithful than when they were than at the beginning. This is. This is the growing Christian life. This the this is the normal Christian life. Just because we see more people who grow cold and different uh, today, or even back then, it doesn't mean that that is the way it is. We're going to see a church later on that grows cold and different, and they are rebuked sternly by Christ. Um, it just means that's not the way it is. It just means that that's. We we're all have a wretched and sinful heart, and we tend to just go with it rather than fight against it. Uh, the church Christ commends is the church whose latter love and faithfulness are greater than the former. But the church at Thyatira was not perfect. Um, Jesus did have something against them. Verse 20 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, pornaya, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So haven't we seen this before? Uh, yes, we have. Here is a church that is serving uh, and faithful, but again, they are a church who is allowing false doctrine, moral impurity, and in fact, idolatry in their midst. 
Um, the church is this church is the polar opposite of the Ephesian church. Remember them? They were doctrinally pure. They were the ones who were testing the false apostles and finding that they were uh, they were not true apostles. They were holding to the truth. But if in Ephesus they had lost their first love, well, here in Thyatira their love had actually grown. Their latter works were greater than the first, uh, but their love included tolerating these heretics who perverted Christ's words. Uh, this false teaching in the church is um, it's characterized in the same way that we saw that was called the teaching of Balaam in the church of Pergamum and, and the Nicolaitans as well. This woman was teaching the people of God uh, that it was okay to practice immorality. It was okay to eat the food that was presented in these pagan feasts and sacrificed to these these uh, false gods or false idols. Uh, she's called by a different name, but the heresy that she teaches is the same one we saw taught by the Nicolaitans and those who followed Balaam. They were teaching that conforming to the culture, melding with those who practice idolatry, was something that was acceptable for a Christian. Uh, Christ tells them that this is absolutely false it is never and it is never acceptable to uh to blend worldliness or even forms of idolatry with uh with uh the worship of christ they were being told to stand fast as a witness to the truth even though the the entire world seems like it was trying to get them to conform uh we don't know exactly who this woman was um but she's characterized appropriately with the name Jezebel from the Old Testament. Uh, Jezebel was the queen, the wicked queen over Israel, who uh, led God's people into idolatry by encouraging the worship of Baal. Uh, she encouraged the worship of Ashtaroth. Uh, you can find her referenced in First Kings uh, uh, seventeen, eighteen, throughout. 21 22 but uh, particularly you can see it in first kings 21 verses 25 through 26 she also persecuted elijah she killed many of god's prophets uh, her actions were so depraved and morally wicked that even today the name jezebel still rings with uh, with overtones of uh, of evil when you say it uh, i don't i don't think any mom's naming their daughter jezebel today um, in Second Kings nine twenty two, Jezebel's actions are called harlotry and witchcraft. Uh, this is what this Thyatiran woman was doing. Uh, she probably wasn't, you know, a green witch with a hooked nose, overtly telling people that she was promoting evil. Hey, we're going to do evil instead of follow Christ. More than likely, and I'm just speculating here, she was probably beautiful. She was probably influential, very charismatic. Uh, she was telling people that that compromise with the culture and, and the uh, the forms of worship that went on in the city um, it was a necessity for good citizens and church members you know it was it was not like we're denying christ we're just uh we're just going with uh, you know being good citizens of the city we're uh, seeking the reputation of the world we're just you know you, you got to realize society is changing society is not the same as it used to be it's going to be you know we have to kind of grow with it and blah blah Blah. Uh, but the church is, uh, you know, the, the thing that we need to make sure we realize is that the problem that Jesus is addressing here is not just the heresy itself. He will address that. But it's not just the heresy. The problem he's addressing, he says, I have something against you, is the church's toleration of the heresy. The church here is being rebuked for not disciplining the woman and overtly opposing her teaching. They were they were being tolerant. Let, let me read it again in verse 20. It says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And then it goes on to describe her teaching. The reality is, if you think back, uh, right now my Sunday school class is uh, going through the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 15, we have a direct... Um, uh, proclamation from the apostles in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council that they were not um, they were not to lay the Jewish burden of the law on the Gentiles as far as circumcision and the sacrificial feasts and the the food laws and all those kind of things. Um, but the when the letter when they wrote the letter to the Antiochian church and sent it back with Paul and Barnabas. Um, 
they did stipulate that you don't have to be Jewish in order to be Christian, but you can't be pagan either. You can't be taking part in these festivals and eating things sacrificed to idols as it pertains to participating in the idolatrous uh, sacrificial feast and the ceremonies and all that. That was a direct word from the, the apostles themselves who said, you know, you don't have to be Jewish, but you can't do this either. Well, here this woman was teaching, uh, as were the people who followed Balaam and the Nicolaitans in these Asian churches, that, uh, no, that, that it's okay to do that. They were directly uh, defying what the apostles themselves said in Acts chapter 15. Um now I know it's very it's it's going to be very taboo today, and you're you know you're going to recognize it immediately. But Christianity is not tolerant; it's just a fact. Christians love their enemies, and they pray for those who persecute them. Uh, so when we say we're not tolerant, we're not talking about you know killing folks or or punishing people who don't believe like us. But there are strict commands throughout the New Testament about noting those who claim to be brothers and teach heresy and having no company with them. We can walk through the New Testament. Paul does it in a number of places. He does it at the end of uh, the Second Thessalonians. He does it in Romans, uh, the end of the Roman letter. He says, you note those who call themselves brothers, but they teach uh, heresy. You note them and you don't have company with them. You discipline them. You don't allow false teaching in your midst. Now, pagans, atheists, non-believers, they're, they're going to be who they are. We evangelize them Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners and he called them to repentance and we got that. But what we're talking about here is people who claim to be part of the faith and what they're doing is dividing the faith by teaching heresy. He says, I have something against you guys. And it wasn't your love, it wasn't your service, it wasn't your faithfulness, but it was your toleration of this woman who is teaching uh, doctrines that are diametrically opposed to the truth. Um, believers love humanity by lovingly giving them the truth and enduring whatever comes from it. But we never compromise the message of the gospel or the truth of God's moral character. We do not compromise with the world in our personal lives, with our families, with our churches. There's simply no excuse or justification for it when Christ commands us to come out from among them and be separate. If he could hold these churches in Asia Minor, to that standard while they faced all that they faced, I don't see how uh, the modern church can uh, can possibly claim that that standard doesn't hold for them as well. Verse 21, Jesus demonstrates this love. He says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality, her pornaya. Even Jesus here, I mean, says that he's shown this woman love by not bringing judgment down on her immediately. He has been patient with her. And those who follow her, uh, this is one aspect of Christ's love that the church so often doesn't model. Let me explain it to you. Uh, in Thyatira, they had tolerated this false teaching of this woman. Uh, she encouraged the, the church basically to blend in with the culture. And because Jesus is so gracious and loving, we see that he didn't rain down judgment upon her at the moment that this teaching went forth, at the moment of her sin. And because, you know, I can see that it may have looked like to them that Jesus himself was tolerating what was going on. But nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus' love is patient. It's kind. But it's not the kind of love that does away with justice. Uh, there, there will be judgment and reckoning. We're going to see that in the next verse. Justice and judgment... I mean, justice and judgment itself is loving. That's hard for us to grasp sometimes. Uh, it's loving in that Christ will repay those who have sinned against his word. Uh, it's loving for uh, one who loves you to give justice to one who has hurt you. I think we can all agree uh, on that. Well, uh, it's loving uh, of the truth and of, of God's nature for him to bring judgment. Um, that's why we desperately need the gospel, because all have sinned. Uh, but here we see there's a woman who refuses to repent, even when the patience of the Lord gives her ample opportunity to do so. How often does Christ give us time to repent? Uh, man, in reality, judgment should fall at the very moment that we sin. But Christ loves and his love is patient with us. But make no mistake, his love does not exclude 
judgment. There will be a day of reckoning. In one way or another, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So Jesus tells us what will happen now since this woman, her followers have chosen to ignore his call for repentance. In verse 22, he says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. I will throw her into bed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. Uh, Jesus promises to bring judgment down upon those who pervert his truth and lead those in his church into error. He's going to bring judgment on them. Uh, likewise, those who uh, those who follow her are going to be judged. Uh, Jesus says he's going to cast her into bed. I'm going to throw her. It's literally throw her into bed, throw her into the sick bed. This bed is uh, uh, the bed. It carries the idea of a death bed, a sick bed, a bed of affliction. Uh, Jezebel is portrayed as leading people into adultery. So in essence, Jesus is saying, you know, uh, I'm going to throw you into bed if that's where you want to be. You know, if that's what you want to do, this idolatry, this this fornication, this spiritual uh, harlotry, if that's going to be the lifestyle you choose, I'm going to I'm going to throw you into bed. But this won't be the kind of bed that you expect. Um, now, it'll do us good to remember here what is specifically being addressed is the idolatry of her teaching. She was preaching conformity with the world. There, There's uh, you know, definitely precedent set for worshipers at pagan temples to fornicate with the members of the temple. We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, they were doing that to appease the God and satisfy the God and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But while we, you know, we know that sexual immorality is sinful in every instance, it seems like the overarching message of this Jezebel probably wasn't just, hey, let's all go out and have sex. Um, but it seemed like her teaching was, let's be like the rest of the city. Let's let's worship the way they do. Let's go and, uh, you know, maybe even not necessarily try to appease these gods because we're Christians and we don't believe in these gods. But let's go and be part of the city. Let's be good citizens. Let's let's uh, not put this burden of uh, of rejecting the trade guilds and the, the political worship and all those things so we can prosper with the city. Let's conform to the culture you know be part of the world jesus lets her know that if she chooses to recline on a bed in honor of a roman god he says i'm going to throw you into that bed and you're going to die there in judgment uh, and not only not only this but her children which means those who follow her of course uh they'll be thrown into great tribulation great affliction the tribulation is described in more detail in the next verse uh, but in the next verse it's going to involve their death um we we got to always remember that adultery of any shape or form is a capital crime. Only the mercy of the judge can be appealed to for help. Uh, repentance is the only avenue you got um, for forgiveness and reconciliation. But look at what Jesus says. Even now, even at this moment that Jezebel has refused to repent, she's continually teaching. She has people that are continually following her, continually living in the world as the world uh, denying, basically, practically denying the truth of Christ by their life and their actions. But even now, he says that there's still hope. Even at the brink of judgment here on these followers of Jezebel, Jesus adds the phrase, unless they repent of their works. There is still time, even at the doorstep of judgment, for them to repent and receive forgiveness and, and reconciliation. Then he describes that judgment in verse 23. He says, I'll strike her dead. I'll strike her children dead, excuse me. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Uh, we're told this is the tribulation that they're going to be thrown into. This is going to be death. We're told that her children will be killed, struck dead. The Greek phrase here literally says, I will kill them with death. Um, but usually we understand that to mean to speak of death by disease or pestilence. Uh, it, it's used that way in Revelation chapter 6, verse 8. We're going to see that later in Revelation 18, verse 8. Uh, but it's also used that way to, to be killed with death is uh, pestilence and, and uh, disease in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 27. Uh, so here's something we need to make sure we recognize. Judgment here is brought down upon the children of this Jezebel in order that Christ will be glorified. As strange sounding, isn't it? We don't usually connect those two concepts, uh, judgment and glorif being glorifying to God. Uh, most people don't have a problem seeing God's love and mercy as attributes that glorify his nature. 
but when you talk about wrath and judgment, you know, that's another story. But the reality is that God is glorified when he saves sinners because his mercy and his grace and his love and those attributes of himself are glorified. And he is glorified in his justice and his righteousness uh, in the judgment of sinners. So understand that God's purpose here isn't just about you it isn't just about me it's about glorifying himself it's about glorifying his attributes and the gospel will bring glory to god one way or another that's what it means when it says the word will not return void it will accomplish what it set out to do uh, it isn't a pleasant thought all the time but it's a fact jesus here says in verse 23 that he will kill those who refuse to repent of their wickedness and by doing so all the other churches will know that he is the one who searches the mind and heart. By bringing forth judgment, he will glorify his name uh, throughout the other churches. He will make uh, an example of them. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard truth. But uh, the, the, the phrase, they will all know that I'm the one that searches the mind and heart, and I'll uh, give each of you according to his works, that's actually a paraphrase from Jeremiah chapter 17. Uh, you probably know the, the famous verse that's quoted a lot. I quote it myself a lot. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, that says the heart is desperately deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, Jeremiah seventeen ten, the very next verse says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That is Jeremiah seventeen ten, And that's what's being quoted here. So Jesus is telling them this church, look, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to bring judgment on you if you don't repent. Uh, your heart's desperately wicked, and I'm going to bring judgment so that the churches will know that I am the one who was prophesied in Jeremiah. I am the God, the Yahweh of the Old Testament. I am I am the one who spoke uh, through Jeremiah to the people of Israel so many years ago. I'm the one who searches the heart. I am the incarnate God myself, and uh, Jesus will bring judgment. And so that's something that we're going to see again at the end of chapter 5 when we talk about the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, uh, the Lamb himself has wrath in, in Revelation chapter 5. But by quoting Jeremiah seventeen ten here, he's identifying himself as Yahweh. He's identifying himself as the God of the Old Testament. He's God, a very God, and he'll bring judgment so that the churches will know that he is the one true son of God. He is the one that can see into their heart. He has the authority to command obedience and faithfulness in whatever situation they find themselves. Uh, Jesus himself is the God who renders to every man according to his works. Now, this line that we see in other places in the New Testament, it scares a lot of people. Uh, because they don't quite understand how that truth, the fact that God will repay according to man's works, uh, fits with the proclamation of the gospel. Uh, salvation and justification are given freely to those who trust in Christ. We know that. Uh, but salvation will also produce works. There's just no way around that. Uh, right now, in the, in the early services at church, I'm preaching through First John, uh, yeah, the same John who wrote Revelation. And in that book, John makes sure we know that salvation comes from Christ's propitiation, from his satisfying the wrath. Uh, but he also goes on in great detail and with great pain to show us through First John that the evidence of that salvation is that we live a life that keeps God's commandments, that keeps the commandments of Christ. Um, in fact, you know what? If if you go back to Jeremiah 17, where that verse is quoted from, Jeremiah 17, um, the context of Jeremiah 17 makes that truth plain, that uh, if if you trust in him, if you trust in him, you will be saved, and that salvation will produce uh, will produce a new heart, a new life in you. Uh, let me go back to Jeremiah 17, and instead of just reading verse 10, let me start at verse 5 and read through. And I want you to listen to listen for uh, trusting the Lord, bringing righteousness, and then that righteousness turning into a, a fruitful life of works. It says, verse 5, Jeremiah 17, 5 says, Thus saith the Lord, Curse is the man who trusts in man and who makes flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. He does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. What bears fruit? Trusting in the Lord. Uh, Then verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's wicked. Who can understand it? And then verse 10, we've already read, says, I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so it actually fits perfectly. It actually fits perfectly. Our our justification, our salvation is from trusting in the Lord, is from trusting in Christ's death, his satisfaction of God's wrath. Uh, but in turn, that uh, that salvation, that new heart will always, always bear fruit, the fruit of our deeds and those those fruits will be rewarded uh, when we see when we see Christ and so verse 24 in Revelation chapter 2 says but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden verse 25 says only hold fast what you have until I come so even after all this we still need to recognize that there are still faithful Christians in the church at Thyatira they have uh, they've not held to the teaching of Jezebel. They reject the idea of walking in the pagan cultural practices while claiming to walk with Christ. They refuse her teaching and have not learned what they call, you know, what people call the deep things of Satan. Uh, this uh, moniker of her teaching, uh, they, they probably thought they were learning uh, deep knowledge or coming to a deeper understanding of religion by melding the two cultures. Uh, uh, she probably presented herself as a um, you know, a Gnostic, which which meant uh, the Gnostics taught that they had the uh, higher spiritual knowledge and that uh, if you just come and you be like me, you can get to a higher level of understanding and spiritual uh, uh, acceptability with God. Uh, and, and also here, John's probably, in my opinion, he's probably making a parody about what Paul calls the deep things of God in in First Corinthians chapter two verse ten, um, but instead he calls them the deep things of of Satan. But remember what the reference is here. It's it's what's called syncretism. It's the idea that it's feasible just to blend the cultural religion with Christianity. Uh, and you can do that and, and still be a Christian. It's okay to to live for the world and live in its idolatry and, and to uh, 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 spend your life uh, doing this and still call yourself a believer. John calls these things the deep things of Satan. <clears throat> we uh, we might look at somebody who lived in this way uh, of compromise and conformity and say, you know, really they're a pretty good person. I mean, they aren't doing anything really bad. Um, they're not going out and murdering people, and they're not going out and doing this or that. But the reality is to deny Christ by any word, thought, or deed is is satanic. Uh, even if they thought they could do whatever they wanted because, you know, idols aren't real, and really there's only one God, and we know that Christ is God, uh, and so we can go and participate in these things, and it's fine. It's, you know, we're, you know, we are, I can see them saying, you know, I just have this picture in my mind of them using the teaching of the Apostle Paul and saying, well, we're the strong brethren. We have the freedom to do because we know better. You know, we know the higher spirituality. We know the higher life. So really, if, you, if you're held down by, by these conceptions of culture and, and staying away from this and not handling that and not touching this, um, you're really the weaker brethren and we're the strong ones. And so we have freedom in Christ to go and to worship with these people and to sacrifice to these gods because we know you know they could be misusing the the teaching of paul that way and so here john calls it the deep things of satan he says yeah you you may be getting deep but you're not getting deeper and stronger in the christian faith you're getting deeper and stronger into the demonic things uh for john you know, worship of the idols aren't real gods. There's no only God but one God. But there, there very well could be, and probably are, demonic, um, demonic spirits behind these uh, cultic and, and pagan quote unquote gods and practices and all these kind of things. So he tells the the faithful believers who've not given in to this deception to hold fast. He says, "I don't lay any other burden on you." 
you've been faithful. Your your love is your latter works are greater than your first. You're patiently enduring. Uh, you have rejected this Jezebel woman and her teaching. You just keep up what you're doing. Uh, he gives them no other burden. He says, you just keep keep going. You keep abiding in me. And finally, we come to the promise of eternal life to the one who conquers. In every letter, you're going to see it. Uh, I'm just going to read all the remaining verses in chapter 2, and we'll take them apart to to look at the promise. Verse 26 says, The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over over the nations. Verse 27, And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Uh, verse 28 says, And I will give him the morning star. Verse 29 ends with our typical he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches so this church suffered persecution from the outside compromise and heresy from the inside and you know perhaps the so-called believers enjoyed the benefits of the trade guilds and and you know they were actually able to work and, and move amongst society with the pagan worship uh, it looked like they were prospering and thriving while those holding fast to christ's word were actually suffering because they couldn't they couldn't benefit in the same worldly ways that these followers of Jezebel were doing. So here Jesus tells the one who holds fast and conquers that you're going to be rewarded. This is not for nothing. You're going to you're going to receive eternal life. And remembering remember that uh, conquering is to is to hold the testimony, hold the faith. And we're actually given the definition here in verse 26. Um, we're given the definition of what it means to overcome and to conquer. From the very beginning of these letters, we've heard the promises to those who conquer, to those who overcome. And here we're finally told how to do that, what it means to do that. It says it's those who keep his works until the end. It's those who remain faithful. The conqueror here in Revelation is not the super Christian or, you know, the most spiritually minded or, or anything like that. The conqueror, the overcomer, is the one who is faithful. It's as simple as that. There are only two options. There's not do really good and do halfway good. And the only two options you have as a believer are to be an overcomer or to be a traitor. Those are the only two options. Those are the only two choices. Because if you remain faithful to Christ and his word, you are an overcomer. That's what it means to overcome. Verse 20, verse 26 uh, uh, says, the one who conquers and keeps my words unto the end. That's what it means to conquer. And so he says, the one who does that, um, I'm going to give him authority to rule the nations. The whole world here seems like it's against them and they're fighting a losing battle. But, uh, of course, in the first part of 27, Jesus says, you're going to be rewarded. I'm going to give you authority over the nations and you'll rule over them with a rod of iron when earthen pots are broken to pieces. This is a reference, a direct reference to Psalm chapter 2, which is a messianic psalm. He's actually quoting verse 8 and 9 here, or referencing verse 8 and 9. It says, this is, uh, in this psalm, uh, the father is promising the the authority to the son uh, verse 8 in psalm 2 says ask of me and i will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel he's saying the exact same thing and this is what the fa father promised the son in psalm chapter 2 and remember Remember at the beginning of this letter what Jesus called himself, the son, the son of God at the very beginning. The son gives a share of that authority to his people. We are in Christ. We are in him. And it it, it may be interesting to note that, that in verse 7 of Psalm chapter 2, Jesus is also referred to as the son of God. And so all this is tying together to show Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to, re to reward you. I'm going to give you this eternal life. I'm going to give you this authority, this kingdom, because I am the son of God. I am the Messiah. I am the one who has been given this authority by the father. And we see that same thing in the Son of Man as he ascended to the Ancient of Days and received kingdom in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, this is a promise here in, in Revelation from the Old Testament that is fulfilled in the eternal life. Uh, in the eternal life, God's Messiah gives uh, through his death and resurrection. The fulfillment of the redemption of God has come. 
And finally, he says to those who overcome, he will give them the morning star. And this is a reference to Christ himself. He is the morning star. He will give them himself. I mean, who is the bright and morning star in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16? It's Christ. Uh, believers are going to participate in the kingdom of Christ, rule with him. Uh, as we have already been told, the overcomer will will truly be made. What is being said here is that the overcomer will truly be made priests and kings unto God. They will rule because Christ rules. Uh, they will be given I- eternal life. And and uh, I, we remember the structure. There's always a promise that equates eternal life at the end of each letter. If you haven't seen those, so when I just throw in eternal life, I'm not just making an eisegetical um, assertion there about the text. We've seen it over and over again with the structure of the letters. And so finally they end. It has our familiar exhortation to those who have an ear, let him hear. Um, the believers in Thyatira are called to hold on to the faith in the midst of all that they're going on. In Revelation twelve 11, we're going to be told that overcoming the devil, overcoming Satan, will be by the willingness to stand for Christ unto death. Um, the overcoming is to stand strong in the faith and uh, uh, against compromise and temptation to keep his words. It's not necessarily to grab up a sword and go stand against the evil whatever. It's to hold to the truth no matter what it costs you. The same way that the lamb is going to sacrifice himself for his people, his people are called to uh, to sacrifice their lives and holding fast to the faithfulness and, and service of their king. The believers in Thyatira were called to persevere even when they were suffering the consequences of not participating in the economic and political ceremonies of the day, the pagan worship, they must overcome. I mean, think about this. If they were suffering economically from not participating in these guilds, uh, these feasts, these ceremonies, these festivals, uh, they have to hold the faith even when their kids are crying for food and there's no money coming in because dad has chosen not to be part of the the coppersmith's guild uh, that sacrifices to these other deities. And so he's not getting any work. He's not working among the guild. He's not among the influential people of the city. He's not uh, he's not doing anything. And so even when even when he sees his children in squalor and poverty because of his stand for the faith, he is called to persevere. Uh, what pressure, man, they must have been under. Not only with that, but with the imperial cult as well. You could very likely lose your life if you refuse to uh, worship in their manner. So under these circumstances, it would probably seem to them, you know, it's just a little compromise. It's not that big a deal. Uh, I don't truly believe it, but you know what? i got to provide. I've got to make a living. I've got to prosper. I've got to, you know, I've got to survive. It's, it's, uh, it's basically a lack of faith that God will provide, that God will uh, make a way, and that I am ready to give my life if I'm called to do so. Um, you can see the pressure that they were under. And if Jesus calls this church with these circumstances and this pressure to hold fast to His faith, to their faith no matter what, uh, what would be the message for the church today who's not under anything? like this, especially in the West anyway, who's not under any pressure, not like they are. We're under pressure just to to not be rejected or not be rebuked or to be talked about or whatever. Uh, In America especially, there are places in the world where Christians are facing a lot more persecution than that. But but if if the church at Thyatira was given the command to hold fast, what command would he give you today? 